Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanko and Scott Park. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I'm your co-host, Scott Parkin, in Berkeley, California today. And as always, I am joined by uh, Bob Bazenko from Niles, Ohio. And today we're going to be talking with uh, Jeremy Brecher, who is a, a writer, historian, and activist, and author of numerous books on labor and social movements, as well as uh, doing a lot of work on in the climate movement. Uh, Jeremy is the author of Strike, which is a uh, um, great book, uh, a historical book, an important book that Bob and I are, are big fans of, uh, and also a more recent book, Against Doom, a Climate Insurgency Manual. Uh, he's also the senior advisor for the Labor Network for Sustainability, and so we're going to be talking uh, about, there's a, a bit of a long history around labor and the environment. We've seen industry try to pit the two against each other, and then we've seen progress in that relationship in recent years, and so we're going to be talking about uh, all of that today with someone, with Jeremy, who's been engaged at the intersection of labor, the environment, climate for for quite some time. Jeremy, welcome to the Green and Red podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Maybe to kick off, just because, you know, I think I think we just had the 52nd anniversary of Strike coming out. Um, we could talk, we can talk a little bit about that. Um, maybe if you wanted to just kind of start off with a bit about the power of the strike and you know what the source of that power is um it's it's a it's a kind of basic question but can often be overlooked well a basic theme of strike and a, a great deal of the rest of what i've written over the years uh is based on the fact that uh, as the old uh uh, industrial workers of the world, the Wobblies song said, uh, they've taken untold millions that they never toiled to earn, but without our brain and muscle, not a single wheel can turn. And I think that the underlying power of the strike, and it's actually not just of strikes, but of all ways in which people uh, withdraw their cooperation and withdraw their support from whatever the power centers or the people or the uh, oppressive forces that they're facing and are confronting. Uh, the, the fact that the, the powers of this earth ultimately are dependent on the cooperation uh, or at least acquiescence of ordinary folks uh, is a fundamental principle and almost always ignored uh, when people are thinking about power, they think about the power of bosses, employers, big corporations, the government, armies. But as that song says, without our brain and muscle, not a single wheel can turn. And that fundamental idea of the withdrawal of labor power in the case of a strike, or even more broadly, the withdrawal of cooperation uh, with the powers and principalities of the earth uh, is the fundamental source of power that uh, all of us who often feel and uh, seem to be powerless have if we can cooperate uh, in withdrawing our cooperation from those who are oppressing us or who are doing things that are harmful to us. You've put out a, <clears throat> a new edition. Um, what would you say that the major kind of trends or differences are from that first phase you studied up to 1970, say, and then since then, um, you know, it seems like the, the labor movement has been, although the last few years, we've certainly seen an, an upsurge. But, uh, you know, for the last 40 or 50 years, it's been on the defensive. It's been attacked. Uh, the Democratic Party, who were supposed to be its allies, really haven't done, you know, what they, they could have done to support it. What do you think the biggest shift has been like that, 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 you know, over, you know, from 1970 on? And then do you think the last few years are kind of, you know, indicative of another kind of trend toward more union organizing, more kind of maybe aggressive or militant um, union work? The decline of or labor organization and visible struggle over the last at least 40 years, I think you're right in saying the 70s, early 70s is really 
when it begins to turn is a very real phenomenon and not one to be ignored. I don't think any kind of happy talk uh, saying, oh, labor's fine and this is all an exaggeration. I don't think it's really true. I think there was a major decline in the power of organized labor and of working people in general. Uh, I think that a primary cause of it was globalization uh, because that meant that Ford or General Motors or U.S. Steel could uh, take a large part of their production and their other operations and move it anywhere around the world that was cheapest. And that was a gun pointed at the head of workers and organized labor. Uh, and it essentially created a bargaining situation where they had to uh, <laughs> accept worse and worse conditions, give up more and more power under the threat that the jobs would simply be closed. Uh, their employers would shut down, move away. Uh, and so there were other causes too. Certainly public policy played a role, um, but uh, the uh, loss of the ability, the bargaining power that came from being able to shut down a plant because the bosses could thumb their noses uh, at the unions and say, sure, go ahead, shut down the plant. We can shut down the plant. We're going to shut it down and move it to uh, Oshkosh, move it to um, uh, Timbuktu uh, was uh, a central change in the power uh, relations. So the unions found some techniques and tactics for fighting back against that, but the overall shift in the balance of power was very, very profound. You know, I noticed that the, the great Stott Lindblad, your book, and Stott was a friend of mine. I that's he lived in the town mm -hmm. where I am now. I know. I was going to ask you. Yeah. Uh, you said you were from Niles. Stoughton was at the yeah, end of the yeah. So I was going to ask you. I I used to visit him. You know, it's it's a great loss, but. He often talked about, um, uh, you know, kind of a, in, in a very critical way that unions, especially from the New Deal era on, kind of gave up the right to strike. That was part of the, the agreement, that kind of more corporatist agreement. And I just wondered, you know, kind of what your thoughts on that were, the fact that labor kind of has ceded a lot of its, you know, kind of more effective, maybe best, most effective of strategies. And, you know, whether you see that that coming back, we're hearing at least things from, you know, like Sean Fain and, and you know, the Amazon and Starbucks workers that sound a lot like that labor militancy. But, you know, without that strike, whether it's legal or not, can can labor really kind of continue this path toward making making improvements? Well, the um, auto industry and auto workers are a great example to explore the questions that you're raising. Uh, and um, the great uh, uh, industrial union organizing campaigns of the 30s and 40s brought large hundreds of thousands of workers, actually millions, uh, into unions that were basically, in most cases, new unions. Uh, and the workers who were coming into them were people who were, had not grown up with unions, been uh, had uh, experiences with unions, if they had, they were often bad experiences. Uh, and uh, nonetheless, the uh, conditions got uh, more and more unbearable as far as the pace of work, the level of pay, the uh, forced overtime, etc. cetera. Uh, I, I'm mentioning these things because they're all very similar to the things that workers are facing today in spite of the great difference in our society and the way work is organized, but the fundam these fundamental problems uh, have intensified during the period of, of uh, loss of power of or organized labor. Uh, these problems have gotten more and more intense. Uh, and that's the background to, um, so the, uh, uh, workers today are facing many of those same fundamental problems. And I think that's an important reason that you are seeing in the last couple of years, forms of worker uh, self-organization and action 
that you have not seen for uh, decades. Um, the scale of it is very hard to evaluate in terms of, uh, are we just at the beginning of a great trajectory of uh, more extensive and intensive labor action? Or are we seeing um, a, uh, a, a just a, a bigger blip uh, in the long-term decline? I think it's too early to make a definitive uh, opinion about that. And as uh, uh, Yogi Berra used to say, a prediction is difficult, especially about the future. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, there's certainly things that are happening uh, in uh, 2022, 2023, uh, that were very different from things that had been happening in the recent decades. You know, I, I find it interesting. I was uh, listening to a different podcast, uh, another podcast, not our podcast, the other day, and it was talking about how uh, the topic was around swing uh, as youth voters as a new swing vote and it was actually saying that 88 percent of under 30s are pro labor union which was is kind of mind-boggling in a way i mean that includes trump any trump voters republicans you know along those lines and i'm, and I'm wondering how you think that trend is contributing to this it's like i mean we see a lot of youth gen z millennials which are uh, becoming more and more, you know, progressive on, on, on labor issues more than, you know, previous generations. The, uh, uh, the change in overall support for unions among the American public has been very dramatic. And, uh, the, the, in the poll data, the amount of support for unions, the people who say unions are a good thing or they're in favor of unions has grown. Uh, enormously over the last few years, most extreme among young people. As you say, mm -hmm. one recent poll uh, found that 88% of young people said they would support uh, or did support unions. Um, and uh, it's, uh, by the way, uh, in my organization, the Labor Network for Sustainability is doing, has a young worker uh, project, uh, which is reaching out to young workers around the combination of labor and climate issues, because young people are also very, very concerned about climate uh, and uh, much more uh, both worried about it and more willing to take action around it than their elders. Uh, so that has allowed me to read a bunch of interviews with younger people, uh, young workers, mm -hmm. uh, and get a, some sense of their concerns. Um, and they both feel uh, squeezed by the kinds of work pressures I was referring to before, speed up, low pay, uh, and very much by insecurity <laughs> and the fact yeah. that they when they look forward in their lives, even if they went to college, uh, have some kind of uh, skill, um, they still, as they look forward, see a very, very dim, not to say grim future. Uh, and I think that that makes them very interested, both in trying to participate in climate protection and in uh, organizing unions, taking part in unions, um, unions are not always hospitable to young people. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a very, very old problem in the labor movement where uh, often each new generation of workers finds that the uh, established trade union leadership, uh, they're glad to get their dues, but they're not really that interested in having them play a, uh, join, join in playing a leading role uh, in the organization. Um, that's a long standing kind of struggle that happens generation after generation. We've obviously been seeing that here, uh, uh in, um, the unions where you're not getting an upsurge and where you're not getting, uh, new leadership coming up. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that the Starbucks workers 
uh, and the Amazon workers have formed their own unions, uh, as you say, overwhelmingly composed of young people, uh, because they looked at the existing unions and they said, well, is there really a place for us here? If the existing unions had said, here's your home, we're going to make this a place that you can be who you are and fight for the things that you care about. Uh, I think that they would have had a lot of interest in joining them and be operating under their umbrella. But what actually happened is that the um, uh, young people who were forming uh, local uh, sort of resistance groups uh, uh, in their workplaces um, looked at what they were, what the proposition was and say, you know what, I, we think we better just do this on our own. Um, so that's, I think that's a piece of, of the generational dynamic here too. Um, where, as in the case of the recent UAW events, um, the kind of the door has been opened to younger people to play as, uh, a leading role um then I there I think that they they've st very much stepped forward and uh, uh found a way to operate within the existing trade union structure or at least within a changed the, the very much developing version of the trade union structure and that's what you see in the UAW where the new leadership that was elected uh in 2023 uh uh is very different in its whole approach, much, much more open, uh, totally unlike previous uh, UAW and most other union negotiations where the negotiations are hush-hush uh, and it's, a, it's a, a considered completely illegitimate to tell the membership what's going on in, in the negotiations. They had weekly social media events where they uh, briefed everyone on what was going on uh, and uh, generally a kind of openness like that that makes for a very, very different kind of organization and organizational culture. Yeah. Would you, would you, would you attribute some, some of that? Like we've seen, we've seen Sean Fain and, and UAW leadership, and I would say some other unions too, be more outspoken on issues that aren't necessarily labor issues. I mean, there's one where we see them vocally critical of the billionaire class, but you know, Sean Fain came out and, called for a ceasefire in Gaza. We see labor much more vocal on, on climate issues, for example, than they have been in the past. Would you would you attribute that to some of this younger membership or, or other factors at play? Well, yeah, uh, it is a significant factor. Uh, and the reality is that if established union leadership wants young people to believe that they're uh, people something to support and work with uh they have to address climate and they're finding that out and the ones who are finding it out are beginning to do it um there's also a, a more fundamental point here which is you can look at a trade union as uh something that's designed um uh to represent almost like representing the business interests of a group of, uh, of uh, small businesses in a trade or trade federation. Um, their job is to represent the business interests of their members. Um, and um, uh, it's often called business unionism, that, that mentality and that kind of in, uh, institutional approach. There's a very, very different pole within the labor movement, which is, often called social unionism or social movement unionism or other other terms like that, uh, that see uh, union members as working people who happen to be working in one particular workplace or one particular industry, but who share interests with other working people uh, around the country, even around the world. Uh, and those interests go to common things that are common for those people to to face so in the case of climate uh unions have been very reluctant to become involved with climate issues because there are unions who say our members will lose jobs uh if 
climate protection measures are taken if we start reducing fossil fuel use, for example, uh, well, our uh, workers in the fossil fuel industries will uh, lose jobs. And that's been a very powerful force uh, and concern within organized labor. Also a legitimate one, but one that needs to be addressed by saying, yeah, they should not bear the burden uh, of uh, the necessary changes that are necessary to protect all working people and all people if it comes to that. We have to have a just transition that protects them and makes sure that uh, they're made whole in the transition. So in my view, there is not a contradiction between unions representing the interests of their workers, of their members, as people who work in a particular place in a particular uh, industry, uh, and at the same time representing their interests as part of the working class, working people as a whole. And uh, so uh, you can certainly see that in the Sean Fain and the new UAW leadership, which has been very explicit in terms of uh, we're not here to represent just the interests of people in one factory or company or even uh, just of our members. We consider, for example, unorganized workers in other plants to be part of our constituency. We have an obligation to represent them and their interests. Uh, and we have an obligation to create conditions of welcome that will uh, encourage them to, to uh, join with us, uh, both for their own struggles and for the broader struggles of auto workers and working people in general. So you're definitely seeing that uh, development there and in a number of other unions. I would not say that it's a dominant trend and I would keep an eye open for, you know, no, no union leaders are gonna counter attack against Sean Fain this week. But as things go forward, I, I would keep an eye open for counter pressures where people say, well, you know, there's a lot of hype here, but really, and then they'll find some small thing to pick away at. Uh, I don't think the UAW and Sean Fain are terribly vulnerable to that at this point, but uh, I don't, I think you'll find this, this is the, the response in terms of following the course that they laid out will be uneven. Some unions will do it, some won't. Well, just, was it yesterday, Sean? <clears throat> Sean O'Brien, the Teamsters met with Trump. Right. And, and you know, you've noticed in the past couple of years, Republicans like Hawley and Cotton, who are, you know, utterly disingenuous, <clears throat> you know, will put out these, you know, kind of statements of support for, for unions and labor. And I think a lot of the reason they can do that is because the Democratic Party is kind of like kind of left the field clear to a large degree. You know, Obama hasn't really done anything. Biden calls himself the most pro most pro-union president and, you know, forces the railroad workers back to work. Um, how difficult is it? To, to kind of create a more vibrant and aggressive union movement without any, you know, that kind of support. I mean, the, the, the ruling class, you know, Wall Street, they got plenty of support all over the political spectrum and labor, not so much. How, how do you do it without having that kind of really kind of sturdy support? You know, you go back to like FDR and the new deal or something like that. So uh, just, it's interesting that, um, uh, FDR, although he's remembered as a great uh, supporter of labor, was actually a very ambiguous figure yeah. in that regard. Yeah. Uh, he, he said, you know, curse uh, on oh, both oh, houses yeah. and strikes. He, he took like, what, $6 million for the 1936 election. And then after that, you know, he was, yeah. He was, yeah. But um, no, my point is that that's all. Yeah. No, no. Is, no but, but, but the CIL rolled on anyway. I mean, right, that's, right, that's right. in there. Uh, so when there's that kind of head of steam behind uh, a worker organization, uh, when workers are in a, in a mindset where they say, well, we're just going to do this because we believe in it, we know it's necessary, it's crucial to our future, uh, then the power of the strike that we talked about before and the, more broadly the power of workers in society uh, comes into play. And um, it's definitely true that having political support uh, 
is extremely helpful. Um, but the reality is, <clears throat> you point out the power of of capital is under most normal circumstances uh, entrenched in government and public policy in ways that labor can only make minor inroads into. Uh, and I take that as a kind of given condition until millions of people are ready to sit down in their plants, walk out of the, their offices, go out in the streets until there's that kind of mass popular power uh, which then public officials have to say, mm, does this mean I won't get reelected? Or does this mean that my uh, agency or uh, government is going to get delegitimated in, by, in terms of the people? Uh, only, only when you begin getting that kind of pressure at work do you get a real significant willingness of um, uh, politicians and parties to uh, uh, stand up to the Wall Streets uh, and uh, actually represent interests of workers? Um, and and when that people sort of don't have that kind of mess pressure and mobilization, things tend to slide back to, at least partway back to conventional domination of politics by them that have. Um, so that, I think that that's, I, I'm personally, uh, I'm not against experiments with labor parties or uh, uh, any various kinds of um explorations like that but i don't think i think the democratic party has to be seen more as a pawn of powerful forces than as a powerful force in its own right um and so capturing the democratic party or influencing it as a whole uh is pretty limited as a strategy uh, that does and but at the same and at the same time i don't think of a third party strategy per se uh, is, especially in the American context, uh, too, too promising. Um, what what we need to have is working people organize in their own interest and all of us organize in our own interest in the sense that climate protection, peace, these are interests of everybody. And we need to be organized in fighting for those interests and then use that collective power as a way to pressure the politicians to do the right thing. That doesn't mean that running somebody for office is always a bad idea. Often it's a good idea. Looking at the squad, you can see sometimes it's a brilliant idea. But um, uh, as an overall strategy, I think the core power that working people have available is through their own self-organization and action and i think we're seeing that you know with like the amazon and, and starbucks workers i know i mean i'm in texas and i'm in a Texas state employees union which is affiliated with the cwa and you know they're always hitting me up saying you know will you add an extra five bucks a month or something to code which i won't do because i'm not giving money to the texas democratic party i mean let's talk about throwing it away right <laughs> and there's this heavy reliance and i've seen this and i've talked to other people in other states you know on the democratic party Right. It, you know, for historical reasons. But, um, you know, I think that it, as long as they continue to rely on that, remember, Obama had promised, was it uh, the checkoff system or something like that? And then we've seen these horrible court cases like the AFSCME Janus case. So um, I, I don't know. I'm, I, I guess part of me would like to say, you know, let's just say screw you to the Democratic Party and go out and, and you know, kind of do this in an autonomous way. But I don't know if that's possible or not, but. I mean, I think it's clearly a problem when not just labor isn't really willing to do what it promises it'll do to get votes, but when the unions themselves are like so connected and glued in many ways to the Democratic Party, they're always hitting me up, give money to the Texas Democrats, do this, do that. And, you know, it's not I don't, I don't really see it going anywhere. Obviously, in Texas, it's it's not really accomplishing anything. Yeah. 
I just a, that's just a rant, really. It's something I talk about and think about a lot. But yeah. um, you know, it's as I as I look at like because remember last year or yeah last year everybody was saying like why can't American workers be like the French workers who are out in the streets and they're you know raising hell and and all kinds of stuff like that and it's just like with without you know with with exceptions and you know them way better than I do. That's never really been the way American labor was structured. I mean, you had that period of class war, right, from the end of the Civil War until, I guess, like the little steel strikes. But overall, it's it's been a more, I don't know, timid, I guess, movement. I mean, there are long historical reasons here that I rack my brain thinking about all the time. Hey, folks, you're listening to the Green and Red podcast, where we interview guests like Noam Chomsky and Andrew Basevich. We also have shows on cultural icons like Johnny Cash and Woody Guthrie and the Godfather movie. And we talk to scores of organizers and activists who tell us what is happening in the streets and in the back country. So check us out. Yeah, and I'm Bob Bazenko. And as always, uh, Scott and I want to thank you for listening, for watching, for supporting us. Uh, and we hope we continue to do that. The first thing we ask is that you share this, let people know that we're out there and we're doing something that I think is different. We have a good niche, I think, in left podcast. And uh, we talk to really cool people and, uh, about really important issues. Um, follow us on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, go to our webpage, which is on uh, in the screen. And, uh, um, you know, if you really like us and if you have a, a little uh, extra change around, um, jingles or folds, uh, uh, you can help us out by going to our website at greenandredpodcast.org and hitting that support button and make a one-time donation. Or you can check us out at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast and become a patron. Uh, we'll see you again real soon. I was going to shift to some questions around labor and climate a little bit more. Um, I would my my first question in this yeah. in this segue, Jeremy, is how has the the politics of of workers and and climate changed in recent years? Which is you know something that you've been working on with your work with LNS and 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 a lot over the last um, few years, quite some time now. So my first answer is not an it hasn't changed enough, but it has changed. Um, I think the. Um, biggest change of all is something that we've just seen, which was the UAW in the context of the new leadership and the um, uh, big three strike against the big three took on the idea of just transition to a climate safe uh, economy as a central part not only of its uh, advocacy for what the government should do, but it's, it demands for what the industry should do. And at the core of the uh, UAW strike against the big three was the issue of electrification of, car, of the auto industry. Were we going to go over to electric cars? And mm -hmm. if we did, was that going to be used as a way to augment what someone times called the race to the bottom. Uh, each uh, manufacturer of cars and of batteries uh, would find a way where go where the wages were lowest and where the labor law was weakest, where the right to organize was weakest, and they make their plants there and they produce their cars and their batteries there. And they would use the whole electrification of the industry as a means to drive down conditions for workers and basically render unions powerless. Uh, and that was actually going on. We are well into that process. The um, uh, major car companies have primarily built their plants in the South uh, and in uh, states that have right to work laws. And they've been, the new battery plants are being done uh, as joint venture, excuse me, joint ventures with uh, foreign corporations, um, which claim uh, that they can't be uh, have con claim that they can't have the same contracts as 
American workers and American unions. Uh, and all that was used as a smokescreen to uh, drive down uh, conditions for the workers in those plants and then use that as leverage to demand that the workers uh, in the Midwest and elsewhere uh, outside of the South had to meet those lower wage, more dangerous conditions. Mm-hmm. And the, the UAW took that head on and said, we are uh, completely unwilling to accept this. And instead, you have to raise the conditions of the uh, plants that are uh, making the electric vehicles and making the batteries to those of the uh, rest of the of the industry and uh, the union conditions that exist in our best plants. Uh, and they made that essential demand of the strike, and partially for that reason. Uh, more than 100 environmental organizations, including all the major ones, backed the strike, uh, which is especially important, uh, especially impressive because the propaganda of the companies was, oh, you're going to make the uh, costs of the uh, electric vehicles be prohibitive and no one's going to buy them and you're going to defeat the effort to uh, protect the climate by switching to electric vehicles. Uh, and they took that head on uh, and said, no, if you make a process of transition to cl- uh, climate safe production, be something that is actually a vehicle for uh, severe harm to workers, you are going to undermine the, the drive for climate protection and you are going to make enemies of the people who should be your friends. And instead of that, we need to raise the floor for everyone, especially for those who are being uh, exploited in the uh, production of electric vehicles uh, and batteries, uh, and instead raise the standards for them. And this was part of why the environmental movement overwhelmingly supported uh, the UAW strike. And of course, this, the minute the strike was over, they said, okay, Tesla, you're next. You're coming right in our sights. And uh, uh, again, the propaganda is that, uh, oh, if you organize Tesla and start paying the workers more than the pittance, you're going to make electric vehicles too expensive and no one will buy them and we'll be stuck with climate change. That is a bunch of hogwash, of course. And the alliance of the environmental groups and the UAW has been the perfect way to show that it's hogwash and to show the common interest uh, that uh, both uh, both organized groups have. And of course, we all have to make a living and we all have to uh, live in this um, rapidly deteriorating climate. So... In fact, we're all both workers and we're all both victims of climate change. Uh, and uh, we're fighting for our own interests in in both of those fronts. And what this UAW strike did was to bring them together and around the idea of a just transition uh, right. that would make sure that workers benefited in the transition to a climate safe economy rather than being desperately harmed by it. That to me is the biggest step forward we've taken um, in my maybe 15 years of working in this area. Um, so, yeah. And, and, and what we've seen in the not too distant past is that we've like, like, for example, the, you know, through the, through the 2010s and in the 2020s, I guess we saw, we've seen a lot of pipeline battles. We've saw, you know, campaigns against Keystone XL and line three and Dakota access pipeline and, and labor was always, reluctant because the building trades were saying that, you know, you're going to cost our workers jobs because they're the ones building these pipelines. And so, you know, how, I I mean, I've, I've seen that history. I've seen that history play out in front of my own eyes, right. As a, as a climate organizer for the last 20 years. And I'm I'm just wondering, is there any, are, are we seeing the sort of influence of the building trades begin to wane at this point? 
as as we as we saw like with this with what you just pointed out about the UAW strike. So it's going to be a struggle. I mean, I, I view this as the sort of the first big uh, push. Of course, some of us have been pushing for a decade or more. Uh, people in a lot of unions have. But as you say, the, the opposition of the uh, what we call the fossil fuel unions, which is largely mm-hmm. building trades, miners, some of the utility workers, uh, uh, have dominated the uh, approach of organized labor, specifically the AFL-CIO. Um, there have been pushbacks. There have been exceptions. There have been some beachheads made before. Uh, I think as the overall concern about climate change gets greater and greater as we face catastrophe after catastrophe after catastrophe, um, the eventually the, the organized labor is going to have to change. Um, and the, we're seeing pieces of that happening uh in in many unions on a on a partial scale um the big stumbling block that we find is everyone's in favor of green jobs everyone's in favor of spending money uh, uh creating uh windmills and solar collectors and uh other forms of green energy uh except it is uh but the stumbling block is we have to do that and we also have to stop putting the crap into the air if mm-hmm. have uh we don't have to do it instantly but we have to have managed decline of fossil fuel burning mm-hmm. uh and if we don't do that then the sign global warming that we already are experiencing with devastating effect which is uh, just a love tap compared to what's in the pipeline uh, for the future. And if we don't stop putting this stuff into the atmosphere, that is uh, no amount of green jobs and uh, insulation and windmills is going to solve the problem. You have to cut the uh, uh, use and burning of fossil fuels and extraction of fossil fuels and replace it with renewable energy. You can't just add them together. And that's the stumbling block. Very few unions have been willing to say, yeah, you know what? We have to make sure that workers don't aren't the ones to get hurt by it, but we have to cut uh, fossil fuel burning and fossil fuel extraction. Um, and that that's, I think, will be the place where the where the real battle comes. Uh, because some unions have got to step forward and say that that's necessary. Now, the other piece here is realistically, from the point of view of the building trades, the number of jobs that are open to the building trades by uh, green energy and other forms of um, uh, uh, climate protection uh, are colossal compared to the tiny number of jobs that are actually being defended in fossil fuels. And they're less and less. The number of workers in renewable energy is now growing multiple times faster than the number in uh, fossil fuel energy. So it's it's really a question of t- holding on to um, the past uh, in a way that's bound to be a failure over the, even the medium run. Um, but for all kinds of institutional reasons, it's very hard for them to make the, the leap to um, uh, something else. The number of ele- jobs for electricians that's being opened up uh, is cu- huge, uh, completely disproportionate to the number of electricians who are uh, working in fossil fuel power plants and uh, mm-hmm. other facilities. Uh, and yet it's great division uh, between different sectors of the electrical workers union mm-hmm. uh, about their their approach to climate protection and fossil fuels. 
Um, and that's just one example of how uh, the, the retrograde side here gets perpetuated. Uh, I think because of the realities of the climate crisis, it's like a foreign army is invading the country and the people who are saying, oh, don't worry about that. They're just becoming more and more marginalized and more and more, uh, you know, even a substantial number of Republicans say, oh yeah, if, uh, you know, climate change is real, then they'll blame it on God knows what, all kinds of absurd things that have nothing to do with its uh, real causes. But it's- Like God God being upset at us or things like that. Yeah. 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 Well, which, um, you know, the evidence for that accumulates kind of been more and more every week. <laughs> um, so I think that that, that is going to, it's, it's the, the stability or uh, that there's been of those kinds of positions within labor are going to be severely undermined. Uh, it's a question what, of when and what comes next. Why, why is the leadership of the building trade still so attached to these fossil fuel jobs? If, if there's, you know, this burgeoning, field where their where their members could get jobs and in, in green jobs and renewable energy and things like that well uh i'm going to start with the thing that'll get me into the most trouble which is they receive significant funding directly from the american petroleum institute ah there you their go annual uh uh their a big gala events are funded by the american petroleum institute which is the trade organization of the uh, oil industry. Uh, I, I'm not, I don't believe that's a the principal cause, but it shows you how deeply embedded uh, in that the fossil fuel interests they are. Uh, in some cases, it is um, just a kind of macho belief in, you know, we're like, we're the big, we're the big guys. We're the men who go out and do this tough work, and we get paid uh, three or four times as much as the average worker. And by God, we earn it, and we're going to fight to keep it. It is a mentality uh, like that that's a part of it. Um, and I'm I'm sure there are other factors as well. As a matter of fact, I, I wish somebody would go and do a serious study of this question because. I haven't seen in all the time I've been working on it, somebody really go into that uh, um, and find out. Some of it has to do with uh, internal political balances. Uh, one union that I know uh, about the uh, uh, industrial uh, IAM, the machinist union, um, has strong support for climate passed a strong climate resolution, uh, but it has a minority sector uh, of, of railroad workers uh, who are primarily people who haul coal. And they are, for very understandable reasons, uh, very worried that if we shut down all the coal mines, their jobs are gonna go. Uh, they happen to be a political power way disproportionate to their numbers within the union in terms of their representation on the executive board, stuff like that. So the overall policy of the union, which would have a lot to gain from climate protecting policies in other areas, but the power balance internally puts them in a position to call the shots, at least until a new leadership makes a different uh, configuration of powers. So uh, those are some of the things. I don't think there's any one simple explanation. Um, but uh, um, change is hard and or in organized labor, uh, there's always been a lot of resistance to change at the top. Uh, that's why the CIO had split off from the AFL and had to start a new organization in order to organize uh, the unorganized uh, industrial workers. So it's hopefully we can do it without uh, that kind of process. But it's it's uh, it's going to it will be a struggle and a conflict. And in fact, it already is. 
do you think labor's <clears throat> or do you see it getting involved? Or do you think it will get involved in other issues? I know I'm thinking of like the civil rights movement in the sixties, labor was was deeply involved in that. And there are still issues like that. There's reproductive rights, and I'm not sure, but a significant percentage of union members now are female, they're women. Yeah. So do we do you think that there will be kind of a kind of an expansion into these other areas and you know, kind of as as organizing tools as well? I, I think it's ongoing. I mean, we see it with climate. Uh, yeah. the mo the big recent example uh, was uh, was immigrant rights, where organized labor was had a very was supported in the employer uh, responsibility for turning in immigrants, basically. Uh, and there was a, a campaign, uh, but some unions and unions in some areas, to, began taking a very different approach and began supporting immigrant rights marches and protective legislation. And then some top union leaders went around to others and said, you know what? Our members, these are our members. These people you're saying that the employers should get them, you know, be prosecuted if they don't fire them. These are our members. You got to quit it. We have to ch completely change our approach to it. And they did. And they became actually a bulwark of uh, immigrant rights. And e even today remain, they really have not been backsliding in that area that much because it is their members and it's also the people that they have to organize. So um, uh -huh. Uh -huh. That, that would be an example. And an example where, you know, there was a lot of uh, Trump or pre-Trump Trumpism uh, that they had to go up against for that. Uh, on reproductive rights for women, most unions have good positions on paper, uh, but they have been gun shy about getting involved in this current round of, uh, of the abortion rights struggle. Um, that also could shift partially because it's such an important political issue for the candidates. It's, it's the best card of the candidates that they would uh, want to support and that they hope will uh, support them. And so uh, um, that plus the crucial point that you make out that women are no longer a tiny part of the labor movement. They're a very, very large part. Um, so uh, those things put together are, um, at least create a potential for um, uh, making unions be more active and outspoken uh, on reproductive rights. Uh, and other areas, uh, it's, it's, it's bound to happen, but it's likely to be very uneven. There will be unions to take, and, and there are already unions that take extremely strong uh, stances on a wide range of social issues. Um, there uh, was a opposition to the Iraq war that developed uh, in organized labor that was completely out of line with its traditional support for Vietnam and the whole string of wars that uh, it supported um, the fact that Sean Fain came out um, uh, calling for a ceasefire uh, in um, the uh, in a halt to the Israeli bombing uh, in Gaza is um, uh, it comes in the context of a very long and deep involvement of American labor with Israel. So the fact that there's that much of a beginning of a break, it doesn't indicate that it's all going to go that way. Uh, but I, when you start seeing little uh, areas uh, where if you have a solid rock and then you start seeing little pieces of it beginning to flake off, it's a hint that there's something going on. Um, again, I think it depends uh, in part on how deep the broader disaffection with American 
uh, and Israeli policy goes. Um, it's certainly very much deeper than it has been in the past. Uh, and that's bound to have some effect. I think another uh, factor there is that many people of color uh, identify the Palestinians as people of color who are being uh, abused by essentially white colonialists. Uh, as a Jew, uh, it pains me to have to say that there's a lot of truth in this argument. Um, and uh, that means that in the unions that have strong African-American uh, or other people of color presence, they are very far from the lockstep support for Israel that has been traditional for American labor. Where that leads, uh, if you could tell me the outcome of the Gaza war, I'll tell you the outcome of that struggle. <clears throat> I, um, and just, uh, yeah. just earlier today, I got an email from uh, Mike Elk, who runs Payday Report, <clears throat> who said he's actually having people, um, he's had a few people uh, cancel their donations because he's been um, reporting on Gaza. <clears throat> and I know this is a particularly difficult topic in the United States, but, you know, we saw stuff like this during the, obviously, the Vietnam era. I remember the 80s in Central America where there were, you know, labor councils organized to oppose uh, U.S. intervention in that. So uh, that's kind of I actually did my M.A. on um, labor in the early Cold War. So oh. this is something that's always fascinating. I think, you know, labor's role in foreign policy from the old, you know, AFL-CIA days and things like that to right. the present is, is really important. And, you know, when Fain talks about, um, like when he, I heard him talking about Gaza and Palestine, he also made the point that the United States is spending, you know, billions, hundreds of billions of dollars abroad. And, you know, that's not being spent here on the kind of things workers need. I live near East Palestine, Ohio. It's still it's still a dump. It's still toxic, right? And that's been over six months now, way over six months now. So, you know, I think that that's something that 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 I always kind of look to, and I know how difficult it is because you know you're you're uh, you're disloyal. You're not a good American. You hate America. All this kind of stuff. If you criticize foreign policy, but it seems like um, I mean, Faye's obviously not a dumb guy, and I don't think he would do that if he thought it was reckless. So I think he understands there's a, there's a crowd out there. There are people with their ears open to that. Yeah. Um, I, th I think we've, we've been on for a while, so I think we're kind of getting near the end of our time. I have like maybe like one question left. I don't know if Bob has no, I'm, I'm any other questions. No, I'm good. Um, my my uh, my my kind of last question is we've we've talked a little bit <clears> about <throat> just transition. Uh, it's a term that goes back to at least Tony Mazaki in the in the in the 1970s about how to, you know, transition from industrial jobs which are destructive and harmful for the environment to something more rene renewable and and protective, and it's been applied to climate. How would you say that just transition is being viewed now amongst the labor in within the labor movement, particularly with the leadership? Um, well, there's a significant change. Uh Many unions, especially what we refer to as the fossil fuel union, unions, the uh, like the miners union and the construction unions, few others, uh, were dead set opposed to even talking about just transition, except to abuse it. Rick, uh, Rich Trumka, who was the president of the miners and then became president of the AFL-CIO, said uh, a uh, just transition is just another name for a fancy funeral. Uh, and that was a very widespread attitude, um, way beyond the fossil fuel unions themselves. Um, it was not, this was not a universal view. Uh, there were some unions that spoke positively of a just transition, uh, but not very many. Um, that has changed very much at a rhetorical level so that the term just transition is now actually used by uh, all kinds of top union leaders. Um, and uh, that, that represents a very big change at the talking the talk level. The question of what it'll mean at the walking the walk level, I think is at the present an open question. Um, the uh, UAW not only 
speaking in favor of just transition, but specifically campaigning and striking for a program of just transition, I think represents a huge breakthrough. And we're going to have to see what the effect of that is throughout the rest of the labor movement. Uh, I've been advocating that other unions take it as an example and say, okay, that's what a just transition means in the auto industry. What does it mean in our industry? If you actually looked at what a just transition would mean for the construction industry, uh, the opportunity for it to be both uh, tremendously beneficial to workers and tremendously beneficial actually to the unions themselves, just in terms of membership and clout, uh, it would be um, uh, a very uh, powerful thing to lay out what a just transition for the construction industry would mean in the same way that the UAW has done it for the auto industry. In Canada, there was a, a study exactly along those lines that showed that in Canada, which is, of course, a lot smaller uh, population than here, millions and millions of jobs would be con created for construction workers alone through the, that transition from uh, a fossil fuel economy to a um, uh, uh, climate safe, renewable economy. Um, I, the, there is now an organization of teachers uh, called the uh, ECAN. It's the Educators Climate Action Network. And they are developing plans along these lines for what a green transition for education would be like, uh, both in terms of the, the content of education uh, and also in terms of what do schools look like, what do uh, training programs look like. So uh, I think that that can be done in practically every union and every industry uh, and that that would be uh, uh, a way to move into a very different kind of labor politics around climate. Um, and uh, you can certainly see the beginnings of it. Um, and uh, uh, the UAW has opened the door to um, hey, why don't we all go? Why don't we all go through that door? Yeah, it's. I mean, is is it? I have to say, as a as a longtime climate organizer, it's exciting to see some of this shifts that we've just recently began to see, both with yeah. the the upsurge in, in labor organizing and action, and then also the 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 increasing connections between labor and and climate, you know, yeah. defenders, whatever whatever you want to call 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 us. So. Um, folks, we've been talking with Jeremy Brecher, who is the author of the the great book Strike, uh, also the great book Against Doom, a, a climate insurgency guide. Jeremy's a senior advisor to the Labor Networks of Sustainability, but as a writer and a historian and a documentary filmmaker and and an activist, um, talking today with us about uh, labor and talking to us about labor and climate. Jeremy, it's been a great conversation today. I really appreciate having you on. We're going to have to have you on again again, sometime soon. Oh, and one other thing about Jeremy mm -hmm. is Jeremy has a great substat called Strike and definitely want to encourage everyone to subscribe to it because I've actually done a lot of reading on it recently. And so it's it's a it's a great substack and lots of uh, great writings you have on there. Yeah, thanks for coming on too. I <clears throat> read your book some years ago when I was uh, in graduate school. And so... Um, you know, I've been familiar with it and I've always admired what you've done and, you know, to keep, keep at it all these years is, is not the easiest thing because you lose a few. <laughs> so we well, really thanks very much. It's great to talk with you and great to be able to like, have at least a one-way conversation with your audience. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Thanks so much. Um, if you like what you're hearing, Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're watching this on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. If you're listening to us on the audio platforms, please give us a rate and review. It helps us with the algorithms. And then if you really like us, check us and want to give us some money. And we'll take jingles and folds. <laughs> I can't I can't get that line right. Bob's, Bob's much better at delivering that line. Um, but uh, go to greenandredpodcast.org and hit the support button. Or become a patron at patreon.com backslash green red podcast. 
And then we also have a special announcement. And if you're watching this on video, uh, you can see that Bob is wearing a green and red hat. Uh, and we have many of those in stock now. And we'll be sending them out to anyone who sends us $25 to send us an email at greenredpodcast at gmail.com. Um, and we also have a whole bunch of 2024 uh, certain days calendars for political prisoners, which we will also send you for a $25 donation. Uh, same email. And we'll send, we'll send it all out. Just, you know, give us a little love. Um, it's Bob, 25 each for the for the yeah. calendar or the happier step, not 25 for both. Yes, yeah, it's we, not 20. We got to be a little bit capitalist here. Yeah. And the and the and the and the donation does include shipping. So, just to put that out there too. Um otherwise, misbehave and and, and oh. we'll and we'll bless the hats for you too since I am an ordained minister. I'd be glad to do that. Yeah, that's true. We will we will uh bless Bob will bless the hats. Yeah. Uh I'm 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 more of a, a pagan so I have not been become an ordained <laughs> minister. Although it's very easy from what I understand on the internet. So Hey, don't don't mock my my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> all, right. all right folks uh we'll talk to y'all again soon uh misbehave make trouble etc etc talk to you later good memories are forever send the dog on the tombstone if you're living underneath the bridge man all roads lead to home i got a hidden flask i'm paid in cash got a cross above my bed you know, I hitchhiked from Chicago, and a man walked up and said, This is a union town, a union town, all down the line. This is a union town, a union town, all down the line. And if you come to strip our rights away, we'll give you hell every time. This is a union town, a union town, all down the line.